Kings Insider Podcast on CSNCalifornia.com. Introducing your host, Sacramento Kings Insider, James Ham. Welcome to the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. I am James Ham. Joining me, we got draft coverage. We've got draft coverage from one of the best in the game, Mr. Scott Howard Cooper of NBA.com. Scoop, thanks for joining us. Great to be back with you. You know, last year we had you on, and uh, you and I discussed ad nauseum uh, Willie Cauley-Stein, and of course we nailed it. We knew exactly who the Kings were going to draft, and you, you've you been really higher on, on Willie Cauley-Stein, and uh, well, you were last year. Um, I, I guess we can we could start with some finals discussion, but I, I don't know about you, but I, I think this finals looks like it's over in four or five. Uh, should we just jump straight into draft coverage, or do you have, do you have some insight on this this NBA Finals, it should change the direction. You're not planning on getting many clicks from Cleveland, are you? <laughs> the people in Cleveland never like us anyways. <laughs> um, the Warriors uh, are in control. I wouldn't say that they have a commanding lead. Uh, I wouldn't say it's over because you have LeBron James on your team. Anything is possible. But if the Cavs can't beat a Golden State team on a night that Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson are both barely there offensively, I don't know what hope the, the Cavs really have because that that's an anomaly. That's not going to happen to Clay and Steph again at some point. They're just going to bust out and and drop 20 in a quarter alone. So uh, I think that game one was a huge missed opportunity for Cleveland. Yeah, I've said that it's possible that the Warriors can go cold, but they can't go cold for more than for four for four games out of seven. That's just impossible. And you had them go cold, and you still lost. And to me, that spells disaster for for Cleveland for the most part. I mean, they could make this a series. We don't really. It, they just have to change the way that they they approach the game. I guess uh, you've got to be able to slow down more than just those two guys. And the Warriors are a deep and talented team. And I guess the one thing that you can look at is that their bench doesn't play nearly as well on the road as it does at home. When you see that 45-10, to 10, the bench outscoring, the Warriors bench outscoring, the Cavs bench is so dramatic. And if you look at how the series will play out after Game 2, you go on the road, you're in Cleveland. If the bench isn't there in Cleveland like it has been at home, then I guess that maybe that opens the door, but then you're still dealing with Steph and Clay and Draymond and Harrison Barnes, who had a really nice impact early in that game. So it should be an interesting series, uh, but I don't think it'll be a long series. That's just my opinion. I think there's a good chance you're right. Uh, I would end up looking half bad, and then I picked the Warriors to win, but I thought it would be a seven-game series. So if it does turn out to be somewhere closer to the five games that you mentioned, then uh, I, I think most there was – clearly a sense that some people had coming into this series that Oklahoma City was was the team that uh, the Warriors had to get past, that the Thunder would be a tougher matchup 
than it, than the Cavaliers in the finals, and I don't think anything we saw in kind of game one changes that thought. All right, so let's get to draft coverage because that's that's what you do. You are one of the draft experts for NBA.com, and I, I like to always start this conversation with this draft in particular. Where is it on your scale? Is it a strong draft, a weak draft, an A draft, a B draft, a C draft? I mean, you look at it as a as a whole. Is it a top heavy draft, a middle of the draft? What is it that you that stands out to you in the 2016 NBA draft? It's pretty weak. Uh, I don't think terrible, but uh, there was some excitement last year. There's a lot of excitement already about next year. Uh, we don't know for sure because it, we've seen this happen year after year that a lot of guys get to college and the people that were projected as one and done and you think, boy, the, the 2017 lottery is going to be loaded. Some of these guys actually set foot on a college campus and get into some games and and they get the reality check and actually are not as good as, as projected. And you only need to look this year as far as scale of this year from Kentucky for that reminder because he's somebody that at worst was number two at the start of the season. And I had some some teams telling me they thought he could be the number one prospect even ahead of Ben Simmons. That was not the overall consensus, but it was not a shock when somebody would suggest that. Uh, and now he's probably going to go somewhere around 9, 10, 11, 12. So we don't know for sure until we actually get to next season. But 2017 is the draft that really has people excited. 2016 is much more of a, eh, maybe even, maybe even heading in the direction of poor. Okay. So when we look at those top two, are either one of them MVP quality quality players? Are are they guys that, that could develop into superstars or are we looking at all-star level and down? Well, Ben Simmons is the one that's most intriguing because he is so different. He's got a unique skill set. He's a power forward who handles the ball. He's a point power forward. And so the team that takes him will have the ability of to to put opponents in all sorts of mismatch hell. And uh, he's got a great handle. He's got the size. There's a lot of things to like about him. There are some concerns. He does not have much of a shot at all. He's got to develop that. There are also a lot of questions, some concerns about his attitude. He comes across as a prima donna. And there's some people that wonder about, is he just sort of cruising along as I'm the superstar, get out of the way? Or is he the guy, is he the guy that's going to be willing to be the first one in the gym and the last one to leave? But so what you need to have uh, that intangible attitude to be, go from prospect to actual star. Brandon Ingram from Duke has that right now ben simmons from lsu does not and that's the big concern to answer your question i think that uh they both have mvp ability i don't know that you're looking though at at that is a great chance oh i think all-star is probably uh more realistic that's probably a good analogy okay so i guess this is a question that i asked mike schmidt from uh from draft express the guy who does all those incredible videos but when you look at where the Kings are at at, at eight and the assets that the Kings have, um, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting look because there are all kinds of things that the Kings can do. They can move up, they can move back, they can move out. Uh, but one of the bigger things that they can do 
is they could go back to the Lakers and have a conversation about that second round, that that number two pick and DeMarcus Cousins. Uh, because the Lakers came hot and heavy after DeMarcus last year, and there's a possibility that they would like to improve much faster and not wait for either a, a Ben Simmons or Brandon Ingram to develop. So I guess the question is, Scott, if the Kings came at, if the Lakers came at the Kings with a, with an offer of the number two and some other assets in exchange for DeMarcus Cousins, is there enough value there at number two to consider that, or is it just this isn't the draft to do that in? It's not the ideal draft to do that in, but so little about the Kings situation in general, but especially with DeMarcus, is ideal. So I don't know. <laughs> I think if you're looking for the perfect outcome, um, there's never, that's just not going to happen. It's not just, that has nothing to do with this draft. I just think that that's the predicament the Kings are in, um, in any year with, with resolving this DeMarcus thing. Now it's obviously important to point out that Vlade has said it will not happen, that there's not going to be a DeMarcus trade. Uh, Whether his thinking changes, maybe there's an offer that completely blows him away. Uh, maybe that's just him saying what he thinks he's supposed to say, and and he can always walk it back by saying, well, wow, I didn't expect this offer to come along. So there's always ways to get around that. But for now, the public statement is it's not going to happen. Uh, I, I think that this is uh, something that needs to be be part of the discussion as well, is what else is part of that package? If you're saying number two and uh, Jordan Clarkson, for example, and you're thinking, well, then that, that helps set you up in the backcourt uh, moving forward. It's obviously the what's the what's the rest of it in addition to number two mm-hmm. uh, as, part, as part of the speculation. And also, and I think that this is the really big problem that Vlade and Vivek and the Kings in general would be facing, is at that point you're basically going back to the fans and saying, you guys don't mind being patient for a couple of years, do you? After... And, and how many years have Kings fans been hearing that, right? That you're basically yeah. saying, you're, you're basically saying this is going to be a youth movement now. And not entirely, because you would still have, again, we don't know what other trades might follow, but just if we were for the sake of discussion saying DeMarcus gets traded and the rest of the roster basically stays intact, you'd still have Rudy Gay, you'd still have Omri Caspi, you'd still have some of the, the veteran guys, but the team would be built around uh, the pick you get from the Lakers, the pick you spend, your own pick that you spend this year, Willie Cauley-Stein, uh, sort of that group. And you're basically saying, isn't this a great new building? Uh, we're not going to win many games, but isn't this a great new building? <laughs> and th- that would be a, pretty much a 180 from what management has been saying for a couple of years, which is it's time to get away from the youth movement. It's time to... Uh, it, it's time to get some veterans. It's time to get into the playoffs. And if you trade DeMarcus, you're obviously saying we are. We think it's going to be good for us in the long run. The key, the key sentiment there being long run, because you're you're not going to be in the playoffs this year. Okay, so so Scott, you brought up the fact that you know the the Kings could use a player like Jordan Clarkson because they they need depth in the backcourt. Uh, there's no, we have no idea what's going to happen with Rondo. It's looking more and more like the Kings won't go out and chase Rondo as a major free agent signing again. They're not going to get in some sort of bidding war for his services. But now we have the situation with Darren Collison, uh, which is a very, 
I don't unfortunate, unsavory, uh, something that you know you don't need as as a franchise either. Uh, and so your your point guard position is in such disarray at this point. Um, what does the draft have to help the Kings at at number eight? Is there a potential for a really good? Uh, you know, a, a guy that can come in and step in and help right away, maybe not as a starter, but maybe as someone who, who can play off the bench for major minutes and, and be groomed for something more down the road? At point guard specifically? Yes. Uh, Chris Dunn is a possibility, and he fits many of the criteria that you just mentioned, especially the ability to come in and play right away. Uh, because uh, he, he is leaving as a junior. He's not a one-and-done. Uh, he's 22 years old. He's very developed physically. He's a big point guard, uh, 6'4", 200. Um, pretty sh- everybody says good things about him in terms of that he's developed emotionally as well. He seems very mature. I've talked to him. seems like a really sharp guy. Uh, I had one GM tell me he's good enough to start for a good team as a rookie. That's pretty that's- good. That's pretty high praise. Um, it, there's no, it, it's a strange draft, as we were saying. It's pretty soft, so uh, things there could be a lot of fluctuation when we get to the night of June 23rd. I have him going to the Kings right now at number eight, but it's also a possibility he can get up as high as four or five. It's it's a little bit like Emmanuel Moutier last year. That a lot of people think that this guy's a really good prospect, but there are some clear flaws in his game for all the positives about Chris Dunn, and I just mentioned some of them. There, there are many. He could become a very good defender, and the Kings obviously need that. Uh, but he doesn't have much of a shot, and uh, his ball handling needs needs some work. And those are pretty important things for a point guard. So there are concerns. He by no means is one of those guys where you would look. You're not having a conversation with him about could he become an MVP. Uh, he's not He's not in that mix, but he does fit a possible need, and he is a good player with a lot of positives. What about Jamal Murray? Is he a guy that could, number one, make it to number eight? And number two, can he play the point guard at the NBA level? Uh, He could make it to number eight. Right now I've got him at number seven going to the Nuggets. Uh, A combo guard, uh, a little bit in the mold of D'Angelo Russell, uh, now with the Lakers, that he can play both positions. D'Angelo, though, was more of a a point guard who could shoot well, had some range, and so he could play off the ball. Jamal is the opposite. He's more of a shooting guard that could be a secondary ball handler. I don't think that he can. I don't think he can be a full-time point guard. That's not what the NBA people are projecting right now. He is a good prospect. A lot of people like him. Uh, he shot the ball well. He gives some three-point range, uh, especially the second half of the season. That versatility is always nice. But if you're looking for a point guard, I don't think he's your guy. Okay, so if you're looking outside of that, the Kings could also use help at the two. Uh, the Ben McLemore experience, you know, we, we've already seen three years of it. It's probably time that they try something different there. Marco Bellinelli had his worst season as a as a pro last year uh, for the Kings after signing a three-year deal. If you're looking at Buddy Hield, uh, you're looking at Jalen Brown, is there value there as a guy who can actually come in and make a difference early? Or, I mean, I guess Buddy Hield is that guy, but is he is he a starter? And when you look at Jalen Brown, is he just too far away? Uh, what are your thoughts on those two? Uh, Jalen Brown, farther away, but people like him an awful lot. I think for the Kings, 
that Buddy Heel would be a really nice fit because of position need. Uh, he can, he's versatile. Uh, he scores all over in transition, or he can be a catch and shoot guy. Again, uh, 22 years old, like we were talking about, Chris Dunn. Those are some advantages there. Some teams really shy away from that because they prefer somebody who's younger and that they can develop and they don't have to coach out a lot of the mistakes that he may have, the bad habits that he may have picked up along the way. And obviously, uh, getting somebody when they're 19 or 20 as opposed to 22 means that his career has that many more years left. But if you're a team that's saying we want to be in the playoffs this year, we want somebody that's going to be able to come in and contribute right away. Uh, Buddy Heald has to be in that conversation because he is 22 years old. Uh, he's used to playing good competition in a major program. I think, I think that there is a possibility that the Kings get to number eight and see that somebody is there that will help their backcourt either Chris Dunn, or Buddy Heald, I think both would make sense there. Uh, I don't think both would be there. I don't think they'll have to choose between them. But if one of them was there, I think that they would have to be happy with Buddy Heald. I think that, that he would be a really good fit, and I think that they would have to be pretty happy with Chris Dunn. All right, so you're about to head overseas and, and catch uh, the international prospects. And I just, you know, Vlade Divac is, is from Serbia, uh, he's a guy that that has a lot of ties overseas. They have advanced scouts in in Europe. What is it that you're hearing about this particular group of European prospects? Is there, uh, I guess, outside of Dragon Bender, which is slated to go in the top three, four, or five of the draft, is there anyone else that sticks out to you that has a real shot here to be an NBA player? Yeah, it, it's a good year for the international players. Uh, not a great year because it's just the, the one guy Bender who will go will go near the top, but it's possible that you're going to see three. Yeah, I'd say three guys would be a possibility for the lottery. Uh, once you get down to ten through fourteen, there's a couple that could get in there, and that's just the players who are strictly international. Uh, there's a lot. There's going to be a few options as well from people who are from overseas but have spent a year or two. In college, in the U.S., Jakob Pertl, the Utah Center is one of those. Uh, there's a guy named Luwawu, who's a, uh, a Serbian a swingman who played in Serbia. Uh, Demonte Sabonis, Arvidas' son, people will know him, mm-hmm. uh, played at Gonzaga, but again, has that international background. So I think it's a, it's a good year. You could see five or six, maybe even seven uh, internationals go in the first round, which is a pretty nice showing. And when we talk about the international influence, I don't think we – should limit it just to the Europeans this year because there's a player from China, Zhao Qi, a uh, tall but very thin center who will need a few years to develop. But people like him uh, as a possibility for the end of the first round as well. Yeah, he's huge. There are a couple of really, really big guys in this draft. I mean, we we had Mamadou Njai through uh, from, what is it? Uh, oh, man, you see Northridge? Is that where he's at? Um, Irvine. Yeah, oh, you see Irvine. Irvine. Yeah, 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 yeah. My goodness. I mean, he measured the biggest wingspan in the history of the draft. It's tough to miss him when he's walking down the street. You don't have to ask which you don't have to ask which one is Mamadou. No, you, you actually have to make sure he doesn't hit his head on a street sign. I mean <laughs> he has an eight foot one standing reach, Scott. He can touch the ceiling and the floor in my house at the same time. <laughs> uh uh, but do any is there anyone else that stands out to you that's a project that the Kings can grab at number fifty nine that would make sense and just you know sort of 
you're not going to find another Isaiah Thomas, I don't think. Uh, but someone who might down the road be serviceable that they can scoop up late in this draft and just go, huh, that that worked. That's everybody at 59. <laughs> <laughs> anybody you take at 59, um, you're holding up you're holding up the uh, the picture of Isaiah Thomas and saying, does this look like anybody? And obviously not that <laughs> here, but, but at that point, uh, there's a lot of scouting involved. There's some skill, but there's a huge amount of luck involved when you're getting towards the second half of the second round. Put it this way, if the guy's on your roster uh, into a second season, that's probably a pretty darn good pick. I don't think that you're looking at 59 and saying, all right, who's the guy here that's going to have a long career? Because if anybody thinks somebody's having a long career, they're getting picked much higher than the 50s. At that point, you're either thinking we're going to take somebody who's a big risk. Um, There would have been – there was a case last year of uh, Robert Upshaw, for example. Mm -hmm. And people – People stayed away from him for a lot of obvious reasons that there was a great deal. There's a lot of red flags about Robert, and that's why he did not get drafted, despite being one of the most talented big men around. You would either go in that direction where you'd say, we're just going to take a complete flyer on a guy because he's got a lot of talent, and at the first sign of trouble, I don't care if it's 10 minutes into the first day of summer league, uh, we're just going to cut him. Or you take somebody that you say, this guy is extraordinarily raw, but you know what? We're going to work with him. We're going to, he's going to learn the, the D-League cities really well for about two seasons, or he's just going to stay overseas for, for two more seasons, and we're going to hope he develops over there. But, but realistically, you just can't expect to find Isaiah Thomas. You just have to that's, – that's the shooting star that you have to catch. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to write a, a story searching for Isaiah Thomas. Uh, yeah, you just you just never. I mean, I guess Manu went late in the draft. There there are on occasion a few guys that go really late in the draft that that makes sense. But yeah, but but you can't compare the Manu situation because it was so long ago. Oh yeah. And while while it was not in, while it was not terribly unusual for international players to be taken, uh, it was a much different time than now uh, when you have a lot of internationals being taken in the first round. Uh, and being able to develop somewhere. I remember the first time I saw Manu was at the World Championships in Indianapolis. And there was there had been a little bit of buzz about him because the Spurs were the team that picked him. And, of course, if the Spurs anoint you, you you're on your way to greatness. Yes, of Whether course. you're an assistant coach or an executive or, in this case, a player, that obviously is the greatest thing ever. Uh, so there was some buzz about Manu, and I watched him play at the World Championships, and I kind of looked around and said, this guy lasted until the second round? It was just so obvious that he had a chance to be something more than, than just a guy at the end of the bench. Maybe maybe somebody that could work his way into the rotation with some work. He clearly was a guy that had a lot of talent. So the, the Manu situation, and uh, is I think those days are gone. Yeah, I, I think so too. And you know, back to Isaiah Thomas, the Kings just fully lucked out. I mean, he should not have been there. They they thought he was. I mean, he thought he was going way way earlier than that. Uh, there was even talk of a promise from the the Chicago Bulls in the late first round for him. I mean, I, I think everyone was shocked that he was there. I know the first day of camp, uh, Paul Westfall pulled me aside and said. Oh my gosh! This Isaiah kid has a legitimate shot to be a, a very good NBA player, and I'm like, really? He's like, it's like, oh man, 
He's like, talk about a kid who stood out on day one. He's like, wow. So they're they're, uh, few and far between, the diamond and the rough at the back end of the draft. And I guess that that story about the promise from the Bulls did not turn out to be true. Is that correct? (laughs) I I bet the Bulls are wishing they had drafted him. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I bet there's like 29 other teams that wish they drafted him clearly again because clearly that's that shows that a lot of other people uh, made a mistake and there's going to be there's going to be an Isaiah Thomas most every year it's not going to be as the number 59 pick but there's going to be somebody that gets taken in the 30s maybe even the 40s that has a nice long successful career uh, but it also you also point out the reality that these stories about promises uh, and things like that a lot of it is just nonsense. Yeah, definitely. Well, that was his dad telling me that. Just so you know, they they were they thought they were going. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and really, you know, the draft process is strange in the way that it works out. You just never have any idea uh, where any of these guys are going to go and who is telling them to stay in the draft and who's not. It's sort of the dark side of the draft. We'll we'll, we'll delve into the into that another time, Scott. Uh, thanks for dropping by. Uh, good luck with your finals coverage. Have a great time in Italy coming up. Uh, going to uh, the Euro camp, and I, I don't know. Thanks for for coming in. It's always great to to pick your brain on the draft. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed it as always. All right, that was Scott Howard Cooper, NBA dot com. Welcome back to the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. I am James Ham. Joining me in this second portion of the podcast, Mister Aaron Bruski of Hoop Dash Ball dot com. Av, what's going on? Not much, man. Enjoying this 108-degree weather here in Sacramento and enjoying, I guess, uh, NBA Finals. Um, I don't know. What do, what do you want to call this? Uh, a beatdown? <laughs> <laughs> the march The march to the, the Warriors championship. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's going to be so hot this weekend. I know uh, Toby has a soccer game in Red Bluff which is like a two and a half hour drive at 9.30 a.m. Got to be there at 8.30, so got to leave the house by 6. Uh, and it, in Red Bluff, it's supposed to be like 108 on Saturday. It's supposed to be just absolutely brutal. So, yeah, by the end of that game, you guys should be nice and cooked. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to that at all, at all. So it'll be like a 9.30 to 11 game. And by the time we get out of there, it'll probably already be 100 degrees. Uh, let's just hope it's not on turf. So so let's get to this. We got uh we we've got a lot of topics to cover today. Some of them are are fun topics, some of them not so much. And uh we're going to we're going to talk about it all because there's no reason to shy away from anything. Uh let's start out with the finals. We like to go through what's happening in in the playoffs, Aaron, and to me game 1 of the NBA finals which was played on on Thursday night was exciting. It was fun. It was a complete beatdown. I mean, when you can basically walk into a game with both hands tied behind your back and those hands being Clay Thompson and Steph Curry and not even need them and still thump the Cleveland Cavaliers, it doesn't bode well for this series lasting longer than four or five games. A- am I off base? No, you hit it right on the head. And I'm, I'm, I was a little shocked, and I guess not shocked because the media loves to, to jump on the Cavs whenever they're hot, but they look terrible against Detroit. They beat some sub uh, substandard teams. Uh, Atlanta, in particular, doesn't have a solution for LeBron James. The, the way to beat Cleveland is if you have a solution for LeBron James, then you're in you're, you're in the game, so to speak. And the Warriors have that with Andre Iguodala. But yeah, just you know, if you're the Cavs, 
you have to look at something outside of the box. And I wrote an article about this. You, you, you've got three you know, legs of the tripod, so to speak, with Golden State, with Stephen Clay and Draymond Green. And LeBron can take one of those legs out, and that can be Draymond Green. And the idea that they're playing Kevin Love or Tristan Thompson or Channing Frye, anything more than 30 to 60 minutes a game, it really is just a win for the Warriors. I think that the Cavs have to downsize, go small, because LeBron at center, while Draymond Green is at center, you, you have an advantage you know, when you start at that place, when you start looking at that position, your advantage is in place if you're Cleveland. And then you can get smaller guys out into the game to help defend the three-point line and get your agitators on the floor, your Iman Shumpert, your Matthew Dellavedovas, your your Richard Jeffersons. You got to muck this series up because the Warriors are way too talented and the, the Cavs just aren't even in their, their ballpark. So if they don't make big changes, I think this is either a sweep or a Warriors win in five. Yeah, that's what I'm kind of looking at. I think the the Cavs can steal one away at at home, but overall it's going to be pretty brutal. What we saw in Game 1 was that this is really a poor man's version of the the Oklahoma City Thunder, but without the length, and that's just that's not a good sign. That's That's what the Cavs look like to me. I mean, uh, LeBron is still great, and I thought early on they took the ball to the basket and went right at the Warriors, and that works really, really well. And then they started missing those shots, and the Warriors just contest, contest, contest. There could have been an extra five whistles, maybe ten whistles called in that game that we didn't even hear because the crowd was so loud. Uh, I, I just felt like there were plenty of plays where it got dirty. It got dirty and grimy down in the post, and not a whole lot was called. I'll say, I'll say this about the Della Vadova thing, hitting Andre Iguodala in the nuts. Yeah, that that to me looked intentional. I've seen that play made on a basketball court a hundred times. Well, especially where, by where him. You, yeah, you reach over the. I haven't done this, but you reach over the top and and just slap, and and there you go. And yeah. that to me, you could tell right off the bat that. Delavadova, the look on his face looked like he he was a guilty party. Well, and Iguodala could, definitely was pissed. The league could come back and find him for that. The league could come back and have some major major conversations about that, or you know they can bump it to a flagrant one or a flagrant two. I wouldn't put it past the league because of the Draymond situation, uh, and, and of course the Dante Jones situation from you know like a week and a half ago. So it's just one of those deals where there's no business for that. And Delavadova is a dirty player. I mean, he, he's been voted the dirtiest player in the NBA. Everyone knows that. I, I was just very surprised that the officials chose not to do anything to him, not even give him a flagrant one and put him on track to, you know, to sort of rein him in. I thought for that just to be a standard personal, that wasn't very cool. And uh, that, again, it didn't make any sense to me. It was clear was clear that he had him in the privates and and you can talk about intent or lack of intent whatever you want but uh he missed the ball by a good you know like six to eight inches and there's like he, there's like 10 ball jokes in that statement <laughs> yeah i know i know i hear you but, but uh, i know we got a lot of ground to cover here i'll say this about the warriors they didn't come close to running anything resembling good offense and with their playmakers they're able to get away with that and that's the scary part. The, the, the Warriors are only favored by six and a half points, which almost, you know, if we didn't have plans this weekend, I would be making a trip to, to Reno and or Tahoe and uh, trying to get up there for that. Because the Warriors, if they choose to run effective offense and really, 
you know, dig in to the Cavs and try to do the right things, then I think it could be 20, 30 points. Um, but I think they know they can beat the Cavs with their, their fun stuff, and that's what they're running out there. Yeah, I mean, watching Sean Livingston just rise up over the top again and again. He 8 of 10 from the field. Uh, Barbosa came off the bench, played 11 minutes, 5 of 5 from the field. The bench outscored, the Warriors bench outscored the Cavs bench 45 to 10. It was just, a, they demolished them off the bench. And it was just nuts to watch, especially with the way that the the Warriors starters just weren't playing, you know, particularly well. I, I thought Bogut had a good game. I thought Draymond was all right. Um, and, and I really thought that Harrison Barnes came out early and was really good early. The one thing that stuck out to me watching that game, Steph Curry guarding uh, LeBron James one-on-one was not that bad. Uh, Sean Livingston guarding LeBron James one-on-one, it wasn't that bad. And then the Warriors, of course, switch all the time. Uh, they've got their their system in place that you know they can hand off, and they have a bunch of guys who are all six foot seven and, and can all guard multiple positions. And I, I just think the Warriors are defensively they're a much better team than the Cavs, which is shocking. And I think offensively, they're a much better team. And I, again, I just don't see that series going anywhere. If Steph, I, those defensive plays that you're talking about, Steph held his ground and, and did a very good job. But even I think if that happens again and again and again, he holds his ground and LeBron misses, I think that the Caps will actually take that because LeBron stuck his shoulder in Steph's chest at least five times in that game. Um, and, the, and the Cavs did a good job of roughing Steph up on the outsides. And I think in a game one loss at, at Oracle, you're going to take that and, and try to build off that because that's the way that you beat the Warriors is by beating Steph up. And so uh, I would be careful if I'm the Warriors. I don't know how many of those I want that little guy to take. No, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, so let's get to the other event that happened that night, which I, I don't know if you were able to catch part of it. Um, but Adam Silver, you know, I always uh, – I've been in a number of Adam Silver press conferences and, you know, even before he took over for David Stern, I was in multiple press conferences with Adam Silver and David, uh, David Stern together. And there's something about Adam Silver that cools a room. He just has an ability to, uh, to come across as so incredibly thoughtful and honest. And I I don't, I, I totally dig him. He is such the anti David Stern. If you look at, you know, just like one of them was like five foot three, the other one's like six foot five. And, you know, it's like a, a little stocky guy and a tall, skinny guy. Everything about them is just so incredibly different. And it's such a breath of fresh air to have have such a thoughtful guy running the league. And I know that may come across as just like me praising the commissioner like crazy. But I love him. I mean, I was sitting there quoting him, and you just pull the whole quote. You just you you block quote it all and throw it in because it's so good. I mean, you ask they ask him about Steph Curry and you know should the NBA like widen the court or drop the three point line backwards to to slow uh, Clay and Steph, and, and he's just so thoughtful. You know, expressing how you know he thinks that uh, what. What Steph Curry is doing is he's opening the world for so many more kids to enjoy basketball and want to play basketball because now he's doing something that you don't have to be tall. You know, you can't you can't aspire to be seven foot because that's not going to happen. But you can aspire to uh, 
to be great at a different aspect of the game, and that's what Steph is doing. And uh, just overall, did you get to see any of the the Adam Silver press conference? Uh, yeah, I, I caught a little bit of it. Um, you know, I think the strength of Adam Silver is his pragmatism, and and he's got an incredible intellect. So yes, when he is going through these answers, he's actually working through the steps and and taking you with him on the steps of, of whatever the question is. And you know, in particular, I mean, during the arena story, he would be able to articulate just about anything. Um, involving that story or that situation and do it in a way that really disarmed people that thought that the league had some sort of, you know, ulterior motives or, you know, there's a lot of talk in Seattle about how David Stern had it out for Seattle or even talk about David Stern wanting to, um, you know, make a right, a wrong or pardon me, make a wrong a right by giving Seattle back the team. Anytime we talked with him, he just really laid things out exactly you know, as you would think somebody would lay them out. So it's a pragmatic approach to complex situations. And I think that's his strength. Whereas David Stern was just this wheeling, dealing, not huckster, but he could just basically, you know, hold court right there and, and, and really do what he wanted to do in his way. Uh, yeah, Adam's sar- the exact opposite. Sarcastic. And uh, even at certain times, he almost seemed mean spirited. Uh, and I really like David Stern. I mean, again, getting to sit through press conferences with David Stern, I think is an honor to get to be, uh, someone who, who took a league that was all over the board and turned it into this just machine that it is now, which is an incredible, incredible machine that we're going to see grow and grow, especially with new TV deal. Um, you know, Silver took on just about every topic. I mean, he took on the two minute, the two minute, uh, reports, for the officials and I thought his answer there was like absolutely spectacular like is there there's not a better way to do it like keep giving him better they'll keep morphing and, and trying to change the officials and he's like but if the two-minute reports what they tell us is we're getting about 90 percent right and he's like I think the league can live with 90 percent and and I thought that that was a good answer and he talked about the the North Carolina situation and whether or not the the NBA is going to pull out of the All-Star game. And he said they'll figure it out this summer. But if changes aren't made, then yes, they will pull out. And, uh, you know, he's kind of giving North Carolina a little bit of time to do the right thing and make some adjustments and, and some sort of compromise. And uh, I, I overall, I, you know, the state of the game is in a great place. He's right. I don't think that the league is watered down. I think that there are very good teams and there are very good players and we're seeing, you know, sort of the golden age of the three point shot right now or the, the beginning of the golden age of the three point shot. So I, I don't know. Overall I thought he was a, a magician up there on stage, uh, you know, taking every question and just really, you know, volleying back with with great answers. It's a it's a lawyer thing too. I mean, these guys are all lawyers, and and he's a lawyer. And when you're a lawyer, you can handle pretty much anything in terms of a deposition or a questioning and answering session in front of media. So I think his lawyer background definitely serves him well, and, and in a good way. You know, not not in the way everybody thinks of attorneys. I think he's a genuinely good person, and uh, you know, a real good uh, person to have running the league. I would would add, considering when you look across at the NFL. And, and some of their issues, and MLB with some of their issues. I think Silver's got the, the best interest of the game at, at, in the middle of everything that he does. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to have to see a little bit of Adam Silver with regards to the Sacramento Kings coming up, at, at least it appears. And so we, we've we got to 
we've got to talk about things that are uncomfortable sometimes. And unfortunately, that involves Darren Collison this week. And uh, I don't think this isn't a fun situation. And uh, so basically, just for those who haven't been watching anything and who are lost in a bubble and only listen to the podcast, which I'm not sure there's anyone out there. Uh, but Darren Collison was arrested, I think it was Monday night, uh, Monday morning, 1 o'clock in the morning, and then released the next morning uh, on a domestic assault charge um, and some other stuff, which is really, realistically, the like suspended license and stuff that comes from a old speeding ticket that's no big deal. I mean, those things happen. Um, but the, the domestic violence thing is a very uncomfortable topic, and it's something that, uh, you know, I, I think Aaron... We've got to at least look at this, and you know, I, I have been so incredibly pro uh, Darren Collison as a person, as a leader, as a professional, and now to deal with this, it's the other side of a coin. And look, uh, most of you guys know I've been married for a long time. Uh, I'll, in July, it'll be 17 years I'll be married, and uh, I've would never and have never got into any physical confrontation with my significant other. Uh, my wife and I have never had that as part of, it's not who we are. It's not what happens in our family. Um, you can believe me or not. I, I don't really care. Um, to be honest, it, it just, I've been honest with you guys on this podcast forever and that would never happen in my house. And I, you know, but it does happen. It happens all the time. And I'm not going to make any excuses for Darren Collison. But I'm also going to say, look, number one, the process has to play out. Uh, number two, we don't know what happened. We we probably will never know what actually happened. And we'll never really get the full story because that's not typically how these things work out. Um, unless there are charges pressed and his wife decides to... Uh, testify against him and then we'll actually get her side of the story and we'll get his side of the story and then the truth will be somewhere in the middle uh, but I don't think that's going to happen in this case and I'm not going to go out and, and write that we should give uh, Darren Collison the benefit of the doubt uh, I'm not going to say that on this podcast because I, I don't believe the benefit of the doubt in this situation it's something but you have to allow the process to play out so we actually know what happened so until then I'm not going to take a strong stance on on what's happened with him. I'm just going to take a strong stance for my own life and say that I'm not going to get myself in that situation. And I, that's just who I am. And I, I will avoid that at all costs because that's not who I am. And I hope that this works out for Darren and everything goes as smoothly as possible for him and his family. I've met his wife. I, I've met her a couple of times. I think she's a nice lady. Um I, I know Darren very well. I've spent so much time in the locker room with him, not just on the record, but off the record. We have a very good relationship. Um, I I can't tell you what goes on behind closed doors in anyone else's house but my own. And so, I, Aaron, what do you have? What do you have to add? Now I'll echo all those thoughts, and I'll also add that we not a, we don't like a rule, you know, or we don't have a rule, but we always train our people to wait and see how these things play out. Because if you've been around long enough, you know that you've seen everything and it could go any which direction. Yes. And you just don't know the answer. And that's going to all play out and it's going to all come out in due time. But from a 
Sacramento Kings and and I guess Sacramento perspective, it's a gut shot. You know, when I saw that come it hit the wire, I was like, ugh. You know, that's the guy that you a wouldn't expect it to happen to. B um, the guy that the Kings really couldn't afford to have it happen to. Um, and so now he's in that situation and it puts a huge question mark in play for the Kings at, at point guard and, and really even just from a locker room perspective and a leadership perspective, if that's one of the good guys and it does turn out that, you know, there was indeed some issues there and then he's got to, you know, work through those. I just think it sets back the locker room. And again, I don't want to go too far one way or another with this thing, but, um, there's now this issue of what do you do? And I, and I, I kind of get the sense that, you know, he will probably be with the Kings and, you know, in the same capacity that he was in this last season. So, um, you know, the question then becomes, well, what direction are you going with the point guard position? Are you going, you know, I've made myself very clear what I think the Rajon Rondo situation should be with the Kings. And, and, and I think that that's the, you know, the Kings should let him move on. Um, but now you have less options because if Darren Carlson is not a part of your future, uh, for whatever reason, then, you know, I think you have to take a serious look at other options. And that other option may be a Rajon Rondo or, you know, somebody else in free agency or in the draft. But, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a long couple of years, I think, for the Sacramento Kings and their fans. And I think that the, the overwhelming feeling when that came through the wire was was just massive, massive disappointment. Yeah, and I'm going to echo that. I think that's the biggest thing I'll take away from it. Disappointment. To be honest with you, last guy, last guy in the locker room. I I would have ever thought of that of that happening. Like when I saw it, you're right, it was a gut punch and it was like ugh, it's not it's not fun for us to delve into that that realm. It, it's just not. And so number 1 it was shock. I, like even I, I talked to my wife about it and she was like I, absolutely shocked, like blown away. I mean, if there's one person that you didn't like see that coming and and again, he, he's been married for a while. He's got a, a very cute little two year old boy. Um, you know, I it, it's just you hope that I, I guess in the end is what you're hoping is that what the right thing happens here is is what's best for their family and that they move forward as either as a family or as not as a family, but they move forward and, you know, everything works out for them as people. And, uh, but this is going to leave an indelible scar on his reputation. That's something that you don't get to take back. It's unfortunate for him that he's put himself in this situation and he's found himself in this situation. Again, we're going to have to wait and see how this all plays out. But the last guy that the NBA took to task for domestic violence, which I don't want to compare here because we don't know the Collison story yet. And the Jeff Taylor situation was, was brutal. Uh, but he got 24, a 24 game suspension. And so I think that's one thing that the Kings have to consider is that what does it mean for us? How long is Collison going to miss? Is he going to miss three games? Is he going to miss five games, 10 games, 20 games? I mean, you, Zero you games. You don't know. At yeah, zero I mean, games, but I don't think zero games. I mean, you still at, at the end of the day, you were still arrested. You still, uh, you know, you went through the process. So I, I don't know that zero games is on the table. I, I just think you have to really just sit back and watch things play out because I mean, look at like Chris Anderson from a couple years back when the headlines hit. You know, it was like child pornography. Oh yeah, I might be getting yeah. those details wrong, and that actually ended up being a scam. You know, he he was straight up scammed for that. 
And so you just don't know in these situations. And, and that's where I think that we train our people. We've always trained our people. We're not making, we're not making hot takes. We're not, you know, doing no. anything like that. We're just sitting back and we're going to see how it all plays out. But in terms of a planning and a decision making, what the Kings will do and what they've already done is they're fact finding and they're getting to the bottom of this, trying to figure out exactly what exactly has happened here. And then they're going to end up having to move on. And unfortunately, you know, for the Kings, point guard is such a controversial. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about, you know, Chris Dunn in the draft and guys yeah. like that. You're, you're, you're really looking at a very important position for the Kings and one that you thought, man, Darren Carlson can nail this down for a year as a starter and really just kind of take the pressure off of the point guard situation at least for a year. And then this happens. And so we are going to let this play out. Uh, what we do, what we have been told, uh, at least from my from my research and what I, I've been getting is, number one, it was a mutual situation from what I know. Uh, number two, uh, the Kings are pretty convinced that this is not going to become a huge issue, that it was not a, a major, major situation, and, and that will be how this plays out. I don't know that that's the case or not. We'll have to wait and see how what the district attorney in Placer County decides to do uh, with the case, whether they decide to take it, which they think they have enough evidence to prosecute or whether they don't. Um, and then we'll have to go from there because um, that's really, it, it's where this kind of goes in, in this situation. So, all right, let's, uh, I think we covered that, right, Aaron? We we covered it the best we can. Again, if there's one thing, if, if you are a praying person, I, I would say pray for the family. Pray for Darren Carlson and his family that they figure out what happened here and, and they move forward in some positive way, uh, whatever that might be. All right, so let's get to... More news, and uh, it's not nearly as heavy. It's the Sacramento Kings have hired a coaching staff in its entirety. Aaron, is there any shock and awe to this coaching staff for you? No, no. I think this was telegraphed from, you know, right before the Jaeger hire. So you, you got everybody in place. It looks like, you know, I think there will be a lot more cohesion amongst this coaching staff. I, I really don't see the, the, the factions, if you will. And, and I, I think the Kings fans should be excited about, you know, guys that want to work with each other, guys and gals that want to work with each other. And and that being really the foundation for, for a turnaround season. It's interesting you say guys and gals because uh, we were under the impression that Nancy Lieberman would be back with the Kings, but it was unlikely that she would be part of the coaching staff, that she would be player personnel or or something, some other position within the organization. I was surprised slightly to see her name as an assistant coach. Um, I'm very pleased to see Corliss Williamson is back with the Sacramento Kings. And just from watching Corliss with these draft prospect workouts, him and Dave Yeager have instantly bonded. Like I, I've seen Yeager walk up behind him and like patting him on the back and like they're, they're having conversations and laughing. They seem to really be getting along. And Corliss is, is the guy that... Uh, they really spends a lot of time with DeMarcus Cousins, sort of working with him and having conversations. And, you know, if if you will, a DeMarcus Cousins whisperer. Um, so that's that's a good thing that he's back. And then you look at the guys that they brought in and what you said there about sort of this cohesion of, of people that want to work together. Uh, number one, Elston Turner spent three years with uh, with Dave Yeager in, in Memphis. So that's good. We all know Elson Turner from his time with Rick Adelman. He's a Rick Adelman disciple. 
Uh, he was the defensive guy on from 2000 to 2006 with the Sacramento Kings. So it's sort of a familiar face coming back. It was nice. He was actually up for the head coaching job in Sacramento, but uh, they went with Jaeger and then used him and then brought him in as an assistant. Uh, but then on top of that, they brought in uh, Dwayne Tickner and Jason March. Uh, both of those guys spent time with uh, Jaeger in Memphis. Uh, I think Tickner is a guy who has really worked his way through the minor leagues. 30 years of coaching in the IBA, the CBA, South Korea, all over the place. Uh, again, sort of like Brian Gates, who the Kings also added. Um and then also Jason March, who spent all nine seasons that Jaeger was in Memphis as either an assistant or a head coach. Jason March, uh, March was there, um, video guy and advanced scout guy, and uh, you know, sort of a nuts and bolts coach that you need on your staff. And then I did mention uh, Brian Gates. Brian Gates, uh, former Sacramento Kings assistant under Paul Westfall, spent five seasons with Monty Williams in. Uh, New Orleans, and then last season with Sam Mitchell in Minnesota. He's a good developmental guy, a guy that you'd like to have on your staff. All of these guys, what I like about all of these guys is that they're people who put in the time and the work at the lower levels, a lot like Jaeger, to build their way into the league. You know their work ethic. You know that they're determined and they're not give up guys and they're guys that come in with a purpose. And that's to to work with Dave Yeager and to make his staff as as healthy and good as possible. So I like all of the hires. I mean, there's not a former head coach in there, um, but you know, again, Elson Turner will be the lead assistant. And overall, I think it's a pretty solid staff. Yeah, I, I really like a lot of the things that have happened here. Um, namely, is even though the Kings took a really long time with the coaching search. Uh, a, they got their guy, but B, they um, they've really moved quickly here, and it's a very, I guess, not professional, but by the book process. I think when you bring in a coach like Dave Yeager, and it's not under the the, the kind of conditions that you've seen George Carl brought in under, and in the conditions that even Michael Malone was brought in under as a new franchise. Uh, this is very professional approach, and and bringing these guys together with so much time. Uh, left before the draft I, and I, and having mm-hmm. worked with one another before. And then you've got folks that have been with the team here for the last couple of years that know the history. I mean, there's a lot of synergy in this approach with this particular group, enough experience to be um, considered formidable. And it, so it, to me, the way that this has all come together has actually been pretty good. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see the next three weeks, four weeks as, the, as we approach the draft here, because the Kings have a lot of options. They could go any number of ways with this thing, in particular because of the Darren Collison situation, but also just in general, that eight pick is so fluid and there's different ways they could just go with it. Yeah, I think that's the biggest way to describe it. There's a fluidity to to this draft. Uh, I'm going to add two more things. Uh, Bill Pope, who's been uh, the the Kings scout, uh, their East Coast scout for the last uh, three going on four years, he is renewed, uh, and he is the pro personnel scout, according to my sources. And Dan Hartfield, uh, Hartfield is uh, has been added to the scouting department as well. He spent like six seasons in Memphis uh, as a video coordinator and working his way up in, in their system in the video side. So these are all things that the Kings lacked in the past. Not that they didn't have people for these positions, but they're adding more people 
to the advanced scouting, the the video scouting. They're they're adding more to sort of game preparation, which to me is good. And it's always been it's been a knock on the Kings for quite some time that their game prep, what the book that they hand to everyone in pregame isn't nearly as thick as the book that that other teams have handed. And uh, so I, I hope this all leads to good things. It's just a you have to strengthen the core of your of your team. And when we talk about sort of continuity and everyone working together, uh, Elston Turner and Vladi Divac and Peja Stoyakovic know each other extremely well. Same can be said about Corliss Williamson. All of these guys, in some way or another, it they're connected, and that's that's really good. The continuity of this this should be really nice. Uh, again, Jaeger will know firsthand how to deal with Vlade from conversations that he has with Elson Turner. They'll be able to go and work together with Vlade and say, this is what we need, or you know, this is why we need it, and, and push forward. So I, I really do like the way that this staff was built. All right, so Aaron, let's get to a little bit of draft conversation. Um, I think the one thing, you know, these these draft situations are uh, the – the, the draft boards, the mock drafts, are always a little bit strange. And and so you just kind of have to take them with a grain of salt. And uh, the latest thing that we've seen is Elk Grove uh, native uh, Marquise Chris, uh, who played at Washington. He's a freshman power forward. He's now jumped all the way up to number three in the Draft Express big board. And that's a huge, huge jump. And I have heard uh, from, from people that... His workouts have been pretty incredible, but he's a little bit raw. He's he's got you know he's young. He's a little bit immature, um, but holy cow! A guy goes from you know between ten and, and eighteen all the way to number three in the in the mock drafts. That's a substantial jump. Is that just the fluidity of this draft specifically? Yeah, I think the strength of this draft is going to be in the middle from everybody that I talk with. Um, and this is the season, man. Uh, the draft boards are, you know, not speaking necessarily about Draft Express, but, you know, they're, they and everybody else that covers draft as their core competency are dealing with, you know, volatile stocks. And they go up and down um, throughout this month. And a lot of what you see today is not going to be what you see tomorrow. Um, sometimes the the board will reflect how, how well an, an agent is pursuing a particular client's, um, you know, needs, you know, where they want them to be. So it just, it, it to me, I look at this stuff and I, I want it to settle down for a couple of weeks before I really zero in and try to um, figure out how somebody's going to look in a particular situation. Now, for the Kings, though, you have Chris Dunn sitting out there and he's by and large the top point guard off the board. Mm-hmm. And um, there's not a lot of um, competition. You know, there's not another point guard up high in, in, in all these mock drafts. So, I've been taking time to look at Chris Dunn's game and, and and really trying to decide, is this a guy that the Kings want to get? And and I'd be interested to get your thoughts, but I'm a tiny bit concerned um, about certain elements of his game that I don't know that, that they fit with the Kings, um, namely his decision-making, uh, namely his turnovers. Um, and then on the defensive side of the ball, I don't know that he has good basketball instincts on that side of the floor. Um, so when you factor all those three things in together, I wonder, is he going to be a guy that continues to push the Kings towards their trouble spots, which are defense turnovers, all these things. I love what he brings to the table in terms of athleticism and mm-hmm. even just the 
maybe somebody can can help him click on those things. And and if that's the case, then you're staring at a really really good asset. Like he could be a you know maybe has all star upside if he gets through all those issues. Yeah, but, everyone I've talked to said they believe he's a starting point guard in the, in the NBA. And but he's got a flash to his game that sometimes is to the detriment of himself and his team. The stuff that really got me is he would throw these really bad passes and blame his teammates. And that tells me that he does not understand the game of basketball. And that's a problem. You know, like if you don't have that base foundation that you know the difference between a good play and a bad play, that's going to permeate every aspect of your game. And so that's going to be the challenge for the Kings is, you know, if you had Darren Collison, if you know Darren Collison's your starter, you feel good about Darren Collison, I think you do draft him. And then you, you bring him off the bench and, and you groom him mm-hmm. and, and teach him the game the right way. And then you have a good system in place for developing a, a player with, a, I'd say, immense upside. And But if you put him in a place where he's expected to start right away, this isn't the team for him. His agent probably does not want him with the Sacramento Kings in a starting role because he's going to build bad habits because the Kings play with bad habits right now. They don't take care of the ball. They don't play good defense. They don't understand the difference between a good play and a bad play. It's going to take them a half a year to kind of wipe off the stink from last season's coaching job. And so that's my concern with Chris Dunn. Um, And I do think there's a good chance he'll be available at eight. Well, there's a good chance he'll be available. There's also uh, Jamal Murray, who's a point guard slash shooting guard who can really, really light it up from the outside uh, out of Kentucky. He's young. Um, Chris Dunn is a junior. You would think that some of this stuff would get out of his system. Um, but, you know, you kind of take the good with the bad with a young point guard. You you don't know what a young point guard is going to be until two or three years in, typically, just because they're kind of all over the board to start. Uh, you're going to have confidence issues here and there. They're, they'll go, you know, sort of the the ebb and flow of a, of a young point guard goes all over the board. It's high and low. So I, I, I like Dunn. I don't love Dunn. Uh, if he ends up being the pick for the Kings, I think it's a quality pick because I think he actually has higher end potential than the number eight spot. But this draft is just crazy. I mean, uh, again, uh, Don has withheld his medical records or uh, allegedly his agents have withheld medical records from two or three teams that already have starting point guards and too many point guards like the Phoenix Suns and a couple other teams. So it's with the hope that he'll land in a spot where he will be a starter going forward. Uh, whether it's year one or it's year two, but he'll have a long-term future as a starter. And so uh, it adds a little intrigue. Will he be there at eight? He's In my mock draft, I had him being there at eight for the Kings. And uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. Uh, for me, the positions of need for the Kings, very clear. It's point guard, it's shooting guard, it's small forward, depending on what you do with Rudy Gay. And uh, those are your three primary. You need depth, um, but there aren't that many small forward shooting guards uh, and and point guards in the top eight. There's only a couple. And, you know, again, you're not getting one of the Ben Simmons or, or Brandon Ingram, uh, Chris Dunn, Buddy Hilde, Jalen Brown, Jamal Murray. All of them could be gone by the time the Kings draft at eight. And so now what do you do? And I think that's going to be the biggest thing facing the Kings. What do you do when you get to eight? How many contingency plans do you have and can you get a quality player that not only fits, but is at a position of need and 
potentially one of the better the the best players available and so it, it's difficult one of the benefits of Marquise Chris getting getting such um you know run up the draft boards is it pushes yes. the group of Dunn, Heald, Jalen Brown and Jamal Murray you know down into a guaranteed pickup for the Kings at 8 one of those guys all of them have their flaws um but they're all something that the Kings need so even if that, you know, I guess then Kings fans should just root for Marquise Chris to continue going up the <laughs> draft fun. board. Yeah. Yeah, because you're going to then get a, 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 pros, a blue chip prospect at a position of need. There's going to be flaws with these guys, but, you know, that's why you're picking them at eight. They're not ones, twos, and threes. They're, this is a number eight pick. But even then, I think if you wanted to try to move up, if you wanted to even slide back, say somebody else jumps into that top eight, the Kings have a lot of wiggle room here. All right, so the one other guy I'm just going to throw a name out as my final thought, Aaron. Uh, watch, watch for Vanderbilt's uh, Wade Baldwin to uh, to be a sneaky under the radar. Do the Kings consider him? He's slated to go right around number ten, but that could easily be number eight. He is a sophomore point guard uh, just a, another name to throw in the mix and maybe he does become one of those late climbers and you know we've seen late climbers for years there's always a a late climber this is kind of an early climb for a late climber for Marquise Chris uh you know Johnny Flynn was a huge late climber went from 19 to number what number five in the draft over the course of five or six over the course of a short amount of time um uh, what's his name? Dion Waiters was a mystery late climber that he wouldn't work out for anyone and became like the emperor's new clothes. And he made it all the way to number well, number four when the right before the Kings drafted uh, Thomas Robinson. So just kind of some intrigue there with all of the way that the draft plays out here and how players move up and down the board. So Aaron, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, frankly, I'd love to see the Kings actually um, be able to slide down in this draft and get somebody that they want. So um, you know, as to just stockpile more assets, maybe get a late first rounder out of something or early second rounder in a in a situation where they can slide down. And I think that because of the fluidity of this draft, they could very well do that. So that would be my final thought. Other than uh, it's hot, man. It's, it's hot. hot. It's hot. It's hot. All right. Well, special thanks to Scott Howard Cooper of NBA.com for joining us on the first half of the program. Uh, we will be back next week. The finals will be in full rage by next week or they could be on the brink of being over so uh for aaron bruski i am james ham thank you for tuning in to the csn kings insider podcast we'll see you next week 